O Heavenly Father, the Father of all wisdom, understanding, and true strength, I beseech Thee for Thy only Son, our Savior, Christ's sake. Look mercifully upon me, wretched creature, and send Thine Holy Spirit into my breast, that not only I may understand according to Thy wisdom how this pestilent and deadly dart is to be borne off, and what and with what answer it is to be beaten back, but also when I must join the fight in the field for the glory of thy name, that then I, being strengthened with the defense of thy right hand, may manfully stand in the confession of thy faith and of thy truth, and continue in the same unto the end of my life, through the same our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That was a prayer that Nicholas Ridley one of the Oxford martyrs wrote to one of the other Oxford martyrs, Hugh Latimer. There were two bishops uh, during the Protestant Reformation who uh, were killed for their faith, along with, uh, you might know more famously, Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop. The three of them are considered the, the Oxford martyrs. And that was a prayer that Ridley wrote in a letter to Latimer while they're both uh, in prison. Um, and they spent uh, time apart, the three, the three martyrs and others, uh, in isolation during interrogation. But there was a time when Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer were allowed to be in the same cell together uh, shortly before their death. And I was reading something about, about their imprisonment when they were allowed to be in the same cell, and it said this, At last the prison was so crowded with prisoners that Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley were all put together in one common cell. Before long, another man was added to their number, whom Latimer was indeed glad uh, at heart to greet. After faithful preaching among the poor people of London, he too had been put in prison for the sake of the Protestant faith he held. The four friends read together and encouraged one another, but always Latimer seemed the, the bravest, the leader of them all. Uh, indeed, the, the day of their execution, Hugh Latimer famously standing back to back to Ridley is that they're at the stake to be burned alive, standing back to back. Latimer uh, said to Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And indeed, about 500 years later, here I am talking about it. I mean, it, it was true that um, that the faith that they demonstrated, and Latimer demonstrated to Ridley, and Ridley, in his uh, letter of encouragement to Latimer, strengthened each other even at the time of their death. Well, what could compel these men to have such perseverance and distress? What could cause these men, uh, in a situation probably unlike anything that we here have known, what could allow them uh, to persevere during that time? Well, they were living out, about 1,500 years later, what is described in Acts 2. I'm not going to talk this evening about the Good Shepherd passages, because for a season we're going to be looking at Acts. But these two were living out 1,500 years later what is described in our Acts 2 passage today, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Uh, The four things here that are described at the beginning of that excerpt, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. 
Uh, and I want to take each of them in turn and say something very briefly about them. And I also want to emphasize the, the simplicity of these uh, four ingredients to the fellowship of the believers of the early disciples right after Peter preached his Pentecost sermon 3,000 were added to their number, so about 3,500 Christians, and this is the description of, of, their, uh, of their community. Uh, so the apostles' teaching. Well, the apostles' teaching was nothing less than what Christ taught them. This isn't anything new. The apostles' teaching is what Jesus taught them. Indeed, in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 28, we learn that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, and he says to them, go therefore and make disciples, uh, teach them, the apostles' teaching, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the apostles' teaching is what he taught them, and indeed, on the road to Emmaus in Luke uh, chapter 24, when Cleopas and his companion are walking with Jesus, uh, we learn that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them that all the scripture, in all the scriptures, all the things concerning himself. Uh, so this is what the apostles uh, learned uh, from him. And, and even John says at the end of his gospel, there's so much uh, that that's included here. Uh, even more than we know that's, uh, that's captured in John's gospel or probably all the gospels, so much so that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. He says uh, later at the end of, of, of his gospel, now there are also many other things that Jesus did uh, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Uh, so the apostles' teaching is not uh, is not a little thing. Uh, it's all of this that that Christ demonstrated for them and taught to them. And even Paul says, uh, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and uh, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. So the communion that he's sharing with them is something that he learned from Christ. So again, the apostles' teaching isn't anything they made up, but the apostles' teaching is the teaching of, uh, from Christ. And this is so important in an age uh, when we hear people say, you know, I believe that God continues to, to reveal his will and a sort of ongoing revelation to each person. Uh, and so whatever, you know, Prophet Ted says, or, or whoever, or, you know, I get a sense that, that God is teaching us in this generation X, Y, Z. Well, if it contradicts the Apostles' teaching, that's probably not true, no matter how uh, strongly you feel it. Um, and the, the early church stuck to this, the, uh, the Apostles uh, stuck to this uh, teaching that they learned from Christ. And listen, there is more that God will show us. There is more that God will show us that day that just hasn't come yet. So that's the apostles' teaching. The fellowship. The word here is koinonia. And maybe you've heard that before. Have you heard that before in the Greek? Uh, it gives a sort of deep sense of joint uh, or shared uh, contribution and intimacy. 
And this is like all Christianese words, that it can be sort of overused and abused and sort of loses its depth of meaning, uh, to be sure. But this is the, the fellowship, or koinonia, still, even no matter how overused it is, is something that we shouldn't sort of throw out with the baby water. Still uh, an important thing to, to pay attention to. Um, the fellowship is essential to the Christian community. I mean, just look at the story of Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer uh, in the prison cell, uh, gladly together, sharing life, even though they knew they were awaiting their death. And look at the relationship and the companionship that Latimer and Ridley in particular had. And as a side note, I've said this recently, I, I want you to make friends. You know, I want you to make friends here. If you come here and you think that you uh, can just come and be by yourself and have sort of an individual piety and it's all about your vertical relationship with God, you're short-circuiting uh, what we're here about. Now, that's true. You know, come here and, and get that, uh, that relationship heart-to-heart with God, but you also need the horizontal dimension uh, to, to have the sense of fellowship uh, with fellow believers. Um, uh, just think of Psalm 133, verse 1, that says, uh, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to live together in unity. I mean, have you ever felt that before, the sense of, of unity? But how much more so when we're surrounded around the apostles' teaching? Um, and the whole world seems to be looking for community right now. It's a popular idea. I mean, not just in the church, but but... Uh, and maybe this has always been true, but I hear people talking about community so much um, that, that that's the, the kind of thing that people are looking for, especially in a world where, you know, we're so um, detached with our mobile devices and things like that. People are hungering uh, for community. It's a sort of buzzword, but that's not what I'm talking about. You know, you can make friends at any club or organization but country club members don't die together back to back and say something like uh, Ridley and, and Latimer did. No matter how much you like the Mountain Brook Club or, uh, or whatever the thing is that you are a member of, you know, when it comes to the task, it's not going to be the same thing. I'm talking about something uh, completely different and much deeper. Um, I had a, a Skype call earlier this week with a good friend of mine I haven't talked to in almost a year who's a, who's a, um, who's a missionary with his uh, wife, and they have two uh, children in a Middle Eastern country, uh, and uh, total clandestine sort of operation because uh, what they're doing is illegal. And we had a profound fellowship over Skype. I mean, I just wanted to weep over seeing my fellow Christian brother um, on Skype, this modern technology, and how much he's hungering for that in in a nation that's devoid of it. I mean, he he says, we have like 12 people, we get together every Friday, and that's church. Um, And something that I take for granted um, that he, you know, has a, a paucity of in that country, although I must imagine that it's even deeper among the 12 of them. But the, the sense of fellowship that I had with him over the Skype call uh, was, was so profound. The breaking of the bread. And this probably means both uh, eating meals together and the Lord's Supper. You know, uh, it's not quite clear. But it probably means both. The, 
the, the, the, for the koinonia believers, both eating meals together and the Lord's Supper are imperative. Um, and you'll find in all the, in many of the resurrection accounts in the Gospels that the joy that, that the, uh, the disciples encounter with the resurrection is often met with a meal. Uh, they often uh, eat together. I talked about the, the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and, and uh, Cleopas's companion. At the end of that account, uh, when Jesus was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished in their sight. So uh, not only uh, was he with them, but he eats with them. And, and later in Jerusalem, just after that, when they go to Jerusalem and they say to the other disciples, you guys, you won't believe what just happened. He comes in the room and while they still uh, disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat here? <laughs> and they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. There's just something special about eating with someone. Um, that, uh, you know, it's sort of, haven't you noticed this? You can't have a grudge and eat a meal with somebody. I mean, you can, but it's not very pleasant. And if you do, it might actually, it might actually cause forgiveness to, to happen. That it sort of evens the playing field, uh, when you eat a meal with someone. Um, and so the sort of, the, the fellowship is often marked, not only by the Lord's Supper, but this, this eating together. That's so important. So much so that God gives Peter a vision in Acts chapter 10 to, 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 to get rid of his uh, religious notions about food. That we can no longer be div- divided by dietary restrictions. And there came a voice to Peter that said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. Basically, relationship trumps religion or legalism. No longer are you allowed to let that uh, get in the way of you. And Paul devotes a whole chapter in Romans to this. Read Romans chapter 14. Uh, He devotes a whole chapter to this idea about food and eating together because it's so important. You know, think about that. Is there any uh, legalism standing in the way of relationships uh, for you, uh, especially when it comes uh, perhaps to, to the breaking of bread? And uh, finally, the prayers. And most likely, uh, this includes the Psalms and other prayers of the Hebrew traditions, but it probably includes uh, prayers in the way that, uh, that Christ taught them to pray. I mean, think about the Lord's Prayer. Or the, um, the, the stories that we have about Jesus uh, praying to his heavenly fa- Father, periods of lengthy, deep, and honest connection with God. And in Acts, uh, we're given an impression that they prayed about everything, every stinking thing, you know, every decision that they make, there's a prayer that's attached to it. And the prayer is often done together because it's a part of the koinonia. Uh, when Paul departed from the Ephesian elders whom he loved, I mean, just think of similarly, like the story of Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley. We learn this about Paul when he's departing from the Ephesian elders. He knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was uh, much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. 
and they accompanied him to the ship. Uh, So not only are they in fellowship together, but they're praying together. But look, brothers and sisters, um, I've only told you about the fruits of something. Uh, This is probably kind of a boring sermon so far. It's not my normal style to to talk this way. Um, Because, you know, teaching you about the sort of ordinary place of the apostles' teaching, fellowship, or koinonia, the breaking of the bread and the prayers, is never going to sustainably get you to do it. I mean, just talking to you about it and saying, this is what we got to do. You know, we gotta, we got to follow Paul's, the, the apostles' teaching, uh, break bread together, pray, and have a fellowship. It's never going to get you to do it in a sustainable way. Um, why do these early believers devote themselves to these things? What drove Ridley and Latimer to continue such a devotion even to their death? In uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, he explains what this might uh, be all about. God has put this word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. And that also clarifies the goal of all Christian community. They meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. As such, God permits them to meet together and gives them community. Their fellowship is founded solely upon Jesus Christ. All we can say, therefore, is the community of Christians springs solely from the biblical and Reformation message of the justification of man through grace alone. This alone is the basis of the longing of Christians for one another. Basically, Bonhoeffer is saying that the koinonia, the fellowship, is the koinonia of, of justification. That that's behind everything that I've talked to you about. All this other stuff is uh, the fruit of the understanding and the conviction at the heart level of this message of justification. And my confidence of it is weaker than yours today. And yours might be weaker than mine tomorrow. And we need each other, therefore, to share this message. Indeed, before the 3,000 devoted themselves to the fellowship of believers, uh, they heard uh, this message uh, from Peter, that God raised Jesus of Nazareth, loosing the pangs of death, that they may repent and be baptized, and receive not only the forgiveness of sins, not only the Holy Spirit, but also the promise, the promise uh, that those who were far off, those who had crucified Jesus, God calls to himself. Those who had crucified Jesus, those who were far off, God calls to himself. Uh, This is uh, the message and the promise for you also. This message is for you also, full stop. 
that message that Peter preached uh, in Acts chapter 2 so long ago is also a word for you. Let me uh, read to you uh, one last thing. This is an excerpt from a, a, a book that's describing uh, the, the uh, story of Rid- Ridley Latimer and, and Cranmer and their martyrdom. And there's this little story about the night before uh, uh, Nicholas Ridley's death that uh, he's in a prison cell, but it seems that he has some other people, companions with him who are taking care of him. And listen to what happens the day before this man's death when he knows he's going to die tomorrow morning. On the night prior to his martyrdom, Ridley announced to Mistress Irish, the wife of his keeper, and the others who were taking supper with them, that on the next day he was to be married. You know, he's the bride of Christ. Um, and so showed himself to be as merry as ever he was at any time before. When Mistress Irish wept at the prospect of his painful death, he gently but cheerfully comfort, comforted her with the assurance that though my breakfast be somewhat sharp and painful, yet I am sure my supper shall be more pleasant and sweet. And when his brother offered to watch all night with him, he replied, No, no, that you shall not. For I mind, God willing, to go to bed and sleep as quietly tonight as ever I did in my life. Knowing tomorrow that he's going to burn at the stake. Don't worry about it. I'm going to sleep like a baby tonight. (laughs) I mean, this is a guy who's convicted of that message that Peter preached in the Pentecost sermon. Uh, Ridley and uh, uh, so many other martyrs across the generations had no sort of secret but the ordinary means of grace. Just this this simple message uh, that we find in the fellowship of believers. That's all that he had. They gathered around the same message that we gather around today. The apostles' teaching, the message that Peter shared with them in his sermon. They had the very uh, mundane fellowship. But it was a deep koinonia of justification. They broke ordinary bread at dinner tables and took the Lord's Supper, uh, like we do in church, and afterward, like we will in the fellowship hall, and like you do throughout the week with fellow Christians. But it was enough to open their eyes and to melt their hearts. And they had simple prayers in plain language. But these prayers connected their hearts to God and to each other. And it was all based on the good news and promise of Jesus Christ. So hear this message and accept it for yourself. Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead to loose your pangs of your death. Repent and receive the promise, the promise that God calls calls you to himself. Amen.